Hey folks and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed by John Ford, Django by Sergio Corbucci, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Terry Gilliam, we have newly released The Last Voyage of the Demeter, 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 directed by Andre Aubredal, and finally Gran Turismo, directed by Neil Blomkamp. It's going to be a great show, folks, so stay tuned and enjoy. Vincent Taylor, how we doing, buddy? How's it going, Tom? Uh, it's going okay on my end. How was your uh, How was your week in movies, man? Uh, week was all right. Uh, I feel like uh, we had some highlights in the week. Okay. Um, not in theaters, <laughs> but you know, it, it, was, it was an all right week. Uh, happy to be closing, uh, of course, a a disjointed Western month. But uh, so some two some two powerhouse films, uh, uh, powerhouse films, and kind of like a big moment, a big moment for the for the daily ratings. Ninety six episodes, uh, <laughs> our first John Wayne film yeah, ever, right? Ever right. first John Ford film ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a big moment. I thought so anyway. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely a big moment for Woody. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. Uh, uh, it's it's a powerhouse western that we can start off with, and uh, I was just happy to return to it. I mean, it's just one of those that, of course, we've seen uh, together, and returning to a it a few was, years ago. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I and I watched it fresh as well. Yeah. So yeah. we'll definitely be getting into that a little bit. I'm excited to talk about that film. Yeah. Uh, we managed to watch that last week, mm-hmm. which is nice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk more about some other stuff. <laughs> one thing I wanted to touch on was right off the bat was Gran Turismo. Oh sure, yeah. It was originally scheduled. For August 11th, yep. which is when you saw it. Yep. They then pulled it and pushed it back to the 25th. <laughs> right. However, I don't know if it was a mistake mm-hmm. or if they kept it for a fan early watch. You watched it on the 11th. Yes, yes. It they w- still had like an early release. Right. I don't think a lot of theaters did it at all. Right. Barely any theaters had it. It mm-hmm. w- didn't even list in really box office registries. Oh, really? Which means it was in such small amount of theaters that wow. it didn't register. Wow. Uh, and they calculate stuff that made $1,000. Oh, really? Yeah. So you got a very special early screening of the uh, of the movie. <laughs> this was like The Whale last year. <laughs> very much <laughs> how so, how yeah. How to sneak it in. Yeah. So this is a true early early. It's nice that we yeah. can get this out before it actually comes oh, out for sure. the masses. For sure. Um, Absolutely. So that was fun to find. Yeah. Because then I was, even if I wanted to see it, I was like, wait a second, what? What? This isn't recorded? Because mm-hmm. I texted you and be like, oh, that comes out the 25th, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're like, no, no, no I'm going to go to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, it's, I think it's right now. Um, so that's yeah, kind of we, cool. Uh, well, cool, but also uh, a kind of a foreboding for things to come. Uh, just with pushes. So we had a release yeah. we were going to cover for F. Uh, Gary Gray that was coming out on Netflix. It got pushed to like January or something like that. So It's going to be weird. I don't know. I, th- I think it might 
bode well, though, as far as indie films for us. Oh, uh, sure. They might just get a naturally bigger push a little bit. I had it in the newsletter, that, um, the lineups for the New York Film Festival and TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival, mm. came out. Mm-hmm. And, man, TIFF has, like, an ungodly amount of films yeah, coming TIFF's out. Yeah, big. But some huge, like Chris Pine is directing his first. Oh, really? And Viggo Mortensen oh, is going to be nice. directing his first, which is cool. <laughs> And, uh, News that only you would yeah. pay attention to. But like Michael Keaton is directing himself as a hitman. Oh, so okay. there's going to be, I think, good smaller pictures that we maybe we can get our fingers on. A sure, little bit, sure. Which would be great to kind of fill in whatever this weirdness is happening. Yeah, and I feel like that's probably just a, a rising attitude with these these big blockbusters that have so much hype, and then they don't. They're, they're, it's almost impossible for them to live up to the budget. I know. And now, um, it, and it, and to your point of. We'll see how it bodes for us in the future, even mm-hmm. the making of the films now. Yeah. So we'll see how late 2024, mid 2024 even is. Sure, sure. The Tron director, because Tron 3 is going to be coming out. No way. Yeah. Really? And Tron 3 director, all he did was like tweet something saying like, hey, we were supposed to be filming today. It's our first, supposed to be our first, you know, our first day of uh-huh. shooting. And now 150 people are laid off, yada, yada. Yeah. And then he just urged all parties to please go back to the negotiating table and, like, figure this out soon. Right. And they just torched him online <laughs> for being, like, a scab. And being oh, a- just, just encouraging yeah, them working together? Just, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's like, wow. everybody's calmed down I a little know. bit. Yeah. I want Tron 3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want Tron 3. Okay. <laughs> That's going on your grave stuff. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's never going to happen. So, all right, Pilgrim, let's start. <laughs> let's get let's Let's jump right into it. This is a big film, folks. This is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's directed by John Ford. This came out, I think, what did I just say, in 1962? Uh, yeah. It surprised me that it was a 62 film and not 50s. Mm, the fact yeah. that it was black and white, I thought it was John Wayne was it was, it was when he was a little bit young, younger or something like right, that. Right, right. That's the only thing that surprised me. This is probably my fourth or fifth time watching the film. Mm, mm. It's highly regarded. It's always in the list of either top five or top ten westerns of all time. Yep. It's always highly regarded as John Wayne's one of his top probably three mm. best performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited to get into it. I'm interested in hearing why this is the first John Wayne film or why this kind of was scratching mm. an itch this week for you. Sure. But let's get into it. Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Finn, how did you like it? Why'd you watch it? Well, it, it's a great movie. And folks, we're ending Western Month on a on a very high note because this is easily uh, my favorite from the legend John Wayne. And I think... Uh, so far. <laughs> You're right. So far. Tom's always the holdout for, <laughs> for, for Mr. Wayne. I think uh, in the theme of of going for the throat on top westerns uh you know in this in this disjointed western month i think that that's where liberty valance kind of made the list for me on top of me just wanting to watch a good movie this week right uh and watching you know good movies to supplement maybe some you know meh movies right. to it so <laughs> for years and years and years tom has tried to introduce me to more john wayne films than i can count folks i mean he is much in to, my ear much to vince dismay and my disappointment after <laughs> been watching the films yeah right right <laughs> uh some good some bad and some might rob my credibility in front of one of my favorite directors of all time mm-hmm. uh tom would you like to tell the searchers story or well, a little bit of the, <laughs> the insight of basically on almost all list of best westerns ever right. basically the first film on there is essentially the searchers <laughs> right it's it's pretty much always if it's not the first it's the second yeah the searchers directed by john ford it's john wayne in a kind of a morally gray character Yep. It's an epic movie. It is Martin Scorsese's, one of his favorite movies. <laughs> At one point, it was his favorite movie. Right. The irony that Vin hated the film. I hate The Searchers. I, I, I have made Vin watch it three times. Oh, right. Thinking, me, 
like an idiot always going back to the well. Maybe he's grown on it. Maybe, maybe, maybe something's changed. I think that's the morbid curiosity for me as well. Like, I want to like it. You know, Scorsese says it's his favorite film. Like, I feel like there's something wrong with me. I'm having like, you know, uh, and it's such a projections from this. It's in multiple interviews. He says it. And oh, just yeah. in his morning so heavy, he talks so fast. Yeah. And he's just, oh, the best, the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah, he says it like so matter of fact. Like, there's no arguing with it. <laughs> now, I mean, he says some other stuff during the other interviews, but he <laughs> loves this film, and so many other people love this film. So, for instance, Steven Spielberg would often go back to John Ford films yep. and big time in The Searchers. Sure, who sure. is the Akira Akas, uh, the, uh, Akira Kurosawa? Yeah, huge John Wharton, uh, John Ford fan. Oh uh, yeah, also loves The Searchers. Yeah, so. <clears throat> You we'll know. talk about Kurosawa actually in, in Django a little bit because I feel like that there's there's mm, echoes sure. of that. So, uh, but but basically, my big thing, you know, I'm always slightly heartbroken. I, um, <laughs> you know, I'm like a, the girlfriend that gets always beat up, but always goes running See, back to the. But to... I'm gonna be the one beat up when I if I ever get the chance to talk to Martin Scorsese. Yes. Now, but overall, about John Wayne, it's right. very tough. He lives in the mid '60s to maybe <laughs> mid '70s if we're lucky. Yeah. But yeah. he's very much a high 50s mid 60s kind of guy for you yeah um and i'll be honest even me if we go through 20 john wayne films i mean in he's in over 100 he's in hundreds of pictures oh, for sure and so much before 39 when he was just extras or they had those what they were called three-day movies mm. they would shoot him in three days low mm-hmm. budget back then so he's in so much i probably only seen maybe 25 pictures of john wayne mm. i've seen some of them three four five <laughs> eight nine times <laughs> right literally right. So I, we could go ahead and sit down and watch all of them. I wouldn't be surprised if the vast majority are two shoes for me. Yeah. But the fact is, but they're all two shoes, two laces in my heart. It's, it's a, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's one of those things for right. me. This is your sci-fi. You have the, the leanings. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Exactly right. right. The leanings. So, sorry, that's enough chit-chat. Let's kind of get no, in. No, I... <laughs> Listen, that that's the anytime John Wayne is coming up, I'm immediately thinking of how the searchers and Scorsese and and, and me are at odds, basically. So But yeah, uh back to Liberty Valance. Um Liberty Valance is a different beast. One, uh it came out during a time that black and white films were running side by side with color films. So stylistically, I think this positions itself differently. This was not really nominated for a lot of Oscars or anything like that. I think one was just costume design, but I think at the time, this could have gotten pigeonholed a little bit because it was maybe doing black and white when in the very same year we get West Side Story, which was such a color explosion yeah, on it's, screen. That's, it's another reason why it surprised me when I found out it was 62. Mm. I mean, I'm sure I knew that in the past, yeah. but watching it again, I knew it was black and white and everything like that, of course. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, man, 62. Yeah. It was but- it was strange that he went with black and white. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I, I, I like the choice, personally. Uh, Me but, too. But uh, I, th- I think there's f- things that maybe are puzzle pieces for why this wasn't maybe recognized as, as uh, positively back in the day. And why I think it also stands out for that reason in Bonder Day watching this. Okay. So, the inclusion of Jimmy Stewart, I feel, raises this up a bar in comparison to the talent we see in Westerns coming out in the late 50s and early 60s. And uh, we have film history here with uh, uh, another reunion with director John Ford, who gave John Wayne arguably his first iconic cowboy role in the 1939 classic Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. So having these uh, together is a magic mix for why I feel like Liberty Valance is cut from a little bit of a different cloth than just a no- normal Western. Even if a Western would try to do a similar story and hit on similar themes, I feel like execution 
execution and what goes into that execution, the ingredients mm-hmm. of Liberty Valance kind of is, is why it's a cut above, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely is. In, in, so, in so many ways, I feel like this is a boiled down and an essence of a story or a film. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think it's elevated at the same time. Sure. So people look at Westerns now and they're cute or they're not as good. They can't hold up to anything because they're so simplified kind of. Mm. And that can damage a film. Mm-hmm. I think this is simplified, but in the best ways possible. Yeah. In the best ways you can say that. And just to f- go back to the black and white thing sure. where you said overall you think it was a good choice. Mm-hmm. At first when I'm like, oh, 62, black and white, okay. Then you watch it and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, very purposely done. Yes. The, 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 the stylistic choices made in the film to highlight this needed to be black and white. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of the shots were just beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it really does pay off for it. Yeah. I really do think, and I'll, I'll return to this probably multiple times, but every ounce of this film plays into its theming. That even ties into what you're saying with, um, you know, it's it's it could be seen as simplistic, and maybe in modern day it would be something that it would be even get critiqued for, but... That is not to say that every ounce of this film isn't fine-tuned and lasered in Mm. on what the theme it's trying to get across. Uh, We begin with Stewart's character, uh, Ransom Stoddard. Again, we got some weird weird Western names this month. (laughs) Old and gray and returning to a town to attend a funeral of a mystery acquaintance. That man is Tom Donovan. Or Donovan? Donovan? Donovan. Donovan. Uh, John Wayne's character. Uh, so we'll refer to him <laughs> as Stuart and Wayne. Uh, and the story plays out in a flashback of how these two met. Um, basically, in that flashback, the outlaw Liberty Valance harasses the same town years ago and equally brings our two characters together while also placing them on opposite sides of the fence on how to deal with this threat. Uh, and the film is really an examination of those viewpoints set in this in this Western setting. Folks, I, I really do love how unique of, of, of film this is for a Western. Stewart plays a lawyer that is principled and educated, but slightly naive. A tenderfoot, as Wayne uh, puts it, and, you know, <laughs> largely doesn't belong here. Tenderfoot uh, is such a good name. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and you can just hear Wayne saying, that, saying yeah. it, too. Like, it's such a John Wayne thing to say. He, he also, John Wayne also says Pilgrim in this, oh, which... a lot. I feel this like... This is where the main Pilgrim stuff... Yeah. Yeah, this is where the memes are born, I think. Because I think for a while, I mean, during the years of us tackling John Wayne films, I think I always joked, like, when does he say Pilgrim? And then this is the one that he says it, so... <laughs> But it's great. But this, you know, again, uh, like with so many things that we'll we'll talk about on this review, uh, simple in concept, excellent in execution. You know, uh, this uh, naive, uh, upstanding lawyer type that Stewart plays, you know, it acts as fresh eyes for the audience, but it's especially useful because of how loose the laws are in this town. We don't really get a date. We don't even get really a name for the town, if I'm correct. I think it's just a nameless town. Uh that's a great no it's got it no oh, it, has it, it definitely is i think no yeah because but, the paper oh that's right that's right oh yeah. that's right yes but it's funny it didn't have too much importance because we both can't remember <laughs> right. it. yeah yeah fair <laughs> enough but uh it's particularly lawless i mean it's mm-hmm. i would say it's going a little bit of an extra mile into the lawless west and this frontier aspect yeah to definitely it. yeah 
but it, it positions our conflict perfectly, and I really mean perfectly. Many Westerns concern themselves with justice, but it's only at the end of a hot six-shooter. Stuart has no interest in that type of justice, and as a character, he is contrasted flawlessly by Wayne's cowboy that has seen it all. Again, sounds simple, but in execution, every ounce of this film is fine-tuned to have this kind of opposite side of the train tracks mentality, mm -hmm. while also progressing the town towards dealing with these problems, mainly Liberty Valance. I would say the theme for me, at least, and, and I'd love to have your thoughts, Tom, um, is civilization versus the frontier. Uh, more and more, Stewart's character is trying to bring in voting to the town, education to the town. And not that Wayne's character is against that, but he just knows that in practicality, things have to work differently on the frontier. And that's kind of our, our conflict, that it's a conflict in ideology, basically. Okay, I love that. Yeah. Not in the back of my head while listening or taking or watching and taking notes, kind okay. of. My big thing was how I kind of said it was boiled down as an essence, but in the best way possible. Mm. You know, it simplified things. Sure. And to that very fine-tuned i was taking it down it boiled down the nature of man yeah where we have complete morally good character mm -hmm. morally absolute moral bad character mm -hmm. and then a character where finally we get a morally absolute gray character sure always slipping back and forth between good and evil kind mm. of and that's how i kind of boiled the film down to Interesting. but at the same time it is a constant theme for the film as far as frontier versus new age or new because even in the you know second plot of the film mm -hmm. it's are we going to be a territory or are we going to be state do we Absolutely. want statehood so yeah. to your point it's it could very much be that as well yeah there's a moment that uh, Stuart uh, is educating some of the town and he has written on the on a chalkboard um, education is the basis of law and order mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just feel like him trying to bring that is um, is is the center of the conflict it's it's you know a very Certainly. much a starring role for Stuart and Wayne but I feel like the character Characters operate as a town together, and there's a lot of side characters in that that get a lot of time to shine mm -hmm. and equally have so much importance to that theme. Like I said, I mean, I, I really think this is a, a 10 out of 10 script. I mean, every ounce of this script is just so laser-focused on yeah. examining that theme, and most of all in its characters. Uh, like I praised 1993's Jurassic Park, character writing never wavers, not once. Uh, Stewart operates like a lawyer constantly. Yeah. <laughs> He's, you know, <laughs> the, his arc is basically not picking up the gun as far as Wayne's character, uh, making sure that he stays true to his cowboy ways. I mean, it's not that he's against the changes that Stewart is bringing to the town. Right. But it's just he's on the opposite side of the tracks. And he operates for, uh, like that. And trying to be a reason. realist. Absolutely. Yeah, a hardened realist, basically. Um, and, and I think uh, to compound with your thoughts about like the 50s, I wish this good of of, of mm. writing was in more 50s films. I would yeah. be all right with the moral focus or the the lesson that it has to tell or That's even a, yeah. just the, the the kind of the thought of, hey, people have different experiences and different you know perspectives because of that. I feel like a lot of 50s films try to do that. Liberty Valance nails it, though. Yeah, and I will say just, you know, the, with Ford and Wayne working so much together mm. and in the 50s and everything like that, I love that in this film – Wayne is okay with taking a step back. John mm. Ford is okay with not having such a light on John Wayne because the characters are a lot of shared 
dialogue, share time on oh, screen sure. with these characters between Vera Miles to the main journalist. Uh, sure. It's Shinbone, by the way. Yeah, right? Shinbone. That's it. That's but, the town. But to the newspaper man, it gets yep. way more than just a few lines. Absolutely. Uh, and then the marshal, of course, as well, mm-hmm. who people recognize from Stagecode also. Yeah. Uh, so, and everyone, and even Liberty Valance gets a decent amount. Absolutely. So, I love this shared on screen, and I think... It's 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 appropriate now in the '60s when f- after Ford and Wayne have worked so much together, mm. you know, this mm-hmm. is quite the assembled ca- proper assembled cast. Yeah, one reason why I also thought maybe it would be good in the '50s mm-hmm. is because, in my opinion, uh, James Stewart is ten years too old. Oh yes, uh, I think they're both a little old, honestly. When when I when I see them on screen, I was just like, oh well, I can really tell. But <laughs> I mean, no, that's that's for you know that's for the birds. It's not really a criticism or anything. But uh. but but just because of James Stewart in particular. The way he acts, too, he's always flabbergasted. Yeah. He's just like, whoa, what's going on? I, know, I was really trying. That's actually pretty good. That's right. a good impression. <laughs> I'm the wall. Right. It's, you know, the, it's it, the Mr. It, Smith goes to Washington. Right. The, the, the only thing is it's – and then <laughs> to see him as this fresh out of law school student, oh, kind right. of, yeah. and also kind of uh, have a budding relationship with Vera Miles. Yep. That would almost be – it's just like, all right, he's a little bit old for the role, but that happened a lot back then. Yep. It's the fact that – we start with him being an aged, uh, distinguished senator. Yeah. But in yeah. real life, it looks like, what, he five, have been, what yeah. five years passed? <laughs> yeah, But so no, true. it's like multiple rounds. What, uh, he has hands in governor, senator. Yeah. He, was, <laughs> he worked in an office overseas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's when it's a little bit like, ah, I don't know about that. So true, so true. Yeah. Uh, uh, with makeup Wayne, sure at least, just let him be. Right, you know? Wayne is just Wayne. Right, he's, he's, he's looked like that since 39, basically. <laughs> so I, I would say... One one aspect that I want to it, not a critique, but more so just kind of pose uh, and, and and position for anyone that watches it uh, for folks at home. This is not an action packed movie, folks. Uh, unlike our other western this week that we'll be focusing on, but no scene really feels like wasted time. And mm. again, I think it's because every moment in this film is used to examine this concept of frontier versus civilization and while it may sound potentially boring i need to stress that how airtight the script is with this Um, every character is positioned towards this theme every plot beat is positioned towards examining these different ideologies and creating conflict with them and i think that's where it goes from just you know what otherwise could be like a debate or something like that right instead it's creating a drama around that conflict of ideologies so that's good and it's for two Two hours. It's like two hours and three minutes. That's you know it. it the fact that it is fine tuned and mm-hmm. and slim, kind of and and appropriate. The yeah. fact that that's still two hours is impressive. Yeah. One of the last scenes when there's that big debate of who do we elect mm. for something. Mm-hmm. I felt like that went a little bit long. Okay. And almost in the beginning there was some waste of dialogue, but. That's splitting hairs at that point. Sure, sure. I, I actually really like that scene just in the sense that, um, well, I, I I don't want to get too involved in spoilers. No, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to do a deep dive. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think my observation overall is just that you can tell Ford and team are, are just, you know, there, there's not once that they let it go that yeah. this is lasered in on, hey, these characters all operate differently in this town. Let's see how they work when we put them all together, yeah. basically. Yep. On this recent watch, I think... One key to the film's success is actually having a personality like John Wayne be a supporting character. Mm -hmm. Um, I was worried for a second because 
I actually like your your idea that John Wayne is kind of in the middle between Stewart and uh, I forget who plays Liberty Valance. Oh, um, uh, Lee Van Cleef. No, 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 sorry. no, no. <laughs> Lee Van Cleef is in, is in it. But, uh, yeah. Lee Marvin. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, Lee Marvin. Which a great bad guy, by the way. Yeah, but absolutely. Jo- but Wayne is totally positioned as that, I like that that middleman. Interesting. He represents both men. I guess if, if so often I just saw it as kind of a, a two position, especially with how some of the romance works. But okay. The, but I actually like that yours a lot better. Nonetheless, though, you would agree that Wayne. Is uh, not the lead lead, you know? What I mean? a, no, no, no. That goes to James Stewart all the sure, way. Sure, yeah, sure, for sure. And, and I think what, where I felt, at least watching this again, that being a success is that Wayne is a, a very dominant force on screen. Fill the room, <laughs> right? He's, he's John motherfucking Wayne, you know. Um, That's my stake, Valance. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had to work on it. No, no, yeah, it's good. Uh, well, Ninety-six episodes. I haven't had any practice. You know. <laughs> and your Jimmy Stewart came out swinging. That's, that's good enough. I would say an issue that I have with some of his westerns is that uh, I, I get a little bit annoyed or bored with just how much of a character actor the he shtick. is. Right. It is John Wayne 100% of the time. I love just like how it was with Brando uh, mm. for One-Eyed Jacks. It was just like, oh, this is just like so much Brando. It, it almost doesn't belong. Right, right. Um, not saying that it doesn't belong for John Wayne, but I, I, I return to our director, John Ford, once again, for understanding his strength in small doses. I feel like John Wayne working with John Ford over this is, uh, once again, a brilliant move because he knows exactly where to put him. There's no yeah. moment that John Wayne, I feel like, overstays his welcome, even when he's throwing out the things like, you know... Uh, you know, Pilgrim and whatnot. And that's where I, I call back to Stagecoach because Stagecoach, John Wayne is one of nine. Big, uh, big ensemble cast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and obviously the standout, God, movie. you know, uh, yeah. uh, an immediate star power on, on on screen. But I feel once again, there's there's just a such a mindfulness of the positioning of things that John Wayne doesn't overstay his welcome. Um, I would say, folks, my food analogy this week. Uh, mm, okay. <laughs> For the man himself, John Wayne is a bullion cube of Western. <laughs> wow. Simple to add them into water and instantly have a Western base for the soup of the movie. I love this. But bite into him on his own, and it's an overpowering flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Don't dilute him enough. Too, right. And it's too much. Right. Exactly. Um, I love it. I disagree, but I love, I love the analogy. Right. <laughs> don't forget that when John Wayne fills a room so much when he takes that Brando yeah. ass where he's just like he's being so John Wayne now right that's why people love John oh, Wayne absolutely and because absolutely. he's so not a good actor but a good actor because he's just himself he's like just he him. plays the character yeah uh, lives his life in a very similar way type of deal but yeah uh, love the Poulon cube yeah <laughs> there we go good but uh, but jokes aside folks I think this is an excellent film and, and really perfectly balanced um, again in my moments that you're watching this you might even say to yourself that oh am I, uh, is, is this a little boring is this something that is you know not really grabbing my attention but i feel like the film earns your attention by just not wasting time every single scene back to back has the focus of examining what these characters are doing in the frontier and how civilization how civility is changing what they're used to uh, i think it may not be the western you're looking for if you're looking 
looking for shootouts or style, mm. but its drama and focus elevates it so much higher than a simple Western action film and might be one of the best from the legendary director John Ford as well. We're going to go ahead and give the man who shot Liberty Valance an 84. Whoa! <laughs> okay! Yes, sir! Yes, sir! Wow! <laughs> It was an it's wow. an excellent film. Ear to ear grins. <laughs> so nice to know there's nowhere to go but down too. <laughs> right, right. So nice to know. Westerns were only punch below that notch. Holy hell, eighty four percent then. I think I think Woo! it's I think it is it's it's hard to say it's the best western just because you know, I mean, I know when I say Western, I want I want high noon. I want I want the shootout. You know, right? But at the same time, it is the best Western because it gets to the root of what a Western is about, and that's this frontier life. Yeah, this uh, you know this fringe. It is the boiled down essence. Yeah. of a telling of something. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. I gotta say that's huge. And there's more to watch. There's films you have not seen yet too. So we'll, we'll get <laughs> Searchers there. Searchers for the fourth time <laughs> may just crack it. You know, ninety. I can't wait for episode one hundred ninety six to get our second film. <laughs> Uh, 84% is really good, Vin. I, I, now I have to come clean a little bit. Okay. This never hit for me the way it was always mm. talked about. Sure. And people that I respect or other people's opinions as well, uh, people that have really heard deconstruct film to mm. a granular, granular proper level adore this film to the point of not Westerns, of all of cinema. They mm. say it's one of the best films ever made, one of their favorites. Mm-hmm. And so going into it, it just never hit for me quite to that. It's like, well, am I missing something? Am I detached from this? Mm. Uh, I went back to it again, of course, like I said last week, and I really like this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard for me to say I'm in love with this film. Really? Wow. I know. Very surprising. <gasps> no, but I totally feel you on the expectations can sometimes kill things. Yeah. You know, that's that's and, community. And, 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 and things, <laughs> right. <laughs> the community effect. Uh, things bringing it down for me was a little bit of James Stewart. Not that he was mm. overacting. Interesting. He's a naturally gumby, kind of stringy kind of guy. <laughs> and I just think his age did hurt. Interesting. I needed a younger Jimmy Stewart in this. To sell this by naive like 15 lawyer. Years. Exactly. Right. Green on the gills. And right. And other than that overall story, and that's everything it's trying to be, it hits so well on. Mm-hmm. I would say very minor things that we can take a microscope to, basically, or microscope to. Uh, Lee Marvin is great. I do really like John Wayne in it. He's got a great scene where he's getting a little drunk and he's pissed off. <laughs> yeah. uh, love seeing Wayne in that kind of Absolutely. scene and everything like Anytime that. Anytime they make him a little bit evil in ways. Yeah, uh, oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, overall, though, it, it, it rises above two shoes. Mm. I thought halfway into this film, I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> How am I going to give this two shoes? It is a, it is a lower two shoes with one of those laces are tied, though. <laughs> one of the laces is tied. Right. It's safe. It's a very, it, it is a very good film. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not in love with the film where so many other fans of Westerns are. Sure, sure. And I think you said it perfectly that I, uh, for a lot of people, this elevates above the Western label on it. That right. people just think it's a good drama at that point. And it is. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a, it's a very good film. But I think for you, you want best Western, not necessarily just a, a good Western yeah. with good drama. I want a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but 84, Vin, we, we spent a lot of time on it, but we did need it. I think it's important. It's our first well Wayne film. We well needed deserved. to kind of get your feelings on the John Wayne, you know, <laughs> right, just yes. in general. And the, the Scorsese thing. The Pilgrim thing. effect. Um, <laughs> love it, though. Yeah, two shoes, one lace, and we got an 84%. Massive, massive. Uh, let's move on, though, right away here. We are jumping forward. This is 1966 now, and this is Django mm. uh, with a D. Uh, I don't know if... <laughs> 
I'm assuming now, because Django Quentin Tarantino's has been out for a little while, yep. uh, there was always that thing of the original actor was also in the 2014 rendition of Django. Yes. But I don't know. think a lot of people have seen it. Maybe some people still don't know that it actually was an original film yeah. based on an original character. Yeah, uh, yeah. Multiple Django films actually came out in the 60s and 70s. This is the first one back in 66, directed by Sergio Corbucci, an Italian Western film. Mm. Let's get into it right away. I started this, turned it off in 10 minutes. <laughs> And, you didn't uh, even give it 10 minutes. No, and I didn't fall asleep. I, I turned it off, wow. and I said, I'm not going to waste my small time I have on this. <laughs> and instead, I watched Rango. Oh, so that was Rango. Which I'm glad week. I watched Rango. Okay, okay. Uh, so let's get into it right away. Django 66. Finn. Very interesting. Well, a, a true spaghetti western. Um, uh, folks, if you've never heard this term before, this refers to a string of western films produced on the cheap and usually shot in Italy. Much like we described with the Blaxportation special not too long ago, uh, it's less of a subgenre and more of an era of film. They are all Westerns, ultimately, but they kind of vary in how the Western plays out. And I feel like even coming off the back of Liberty Valance, that a Western itself can have uh, uh, variation. There's a, there's a, there's a, you know. Uh, oh, I'll give you 25 subgenres of Westerns. <laughs> <Even in West. laughs> That's great. That's great. That's how we keep Western Month going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's hallmark here uh, of Spaghetti Westerns being heightened style, soundtracks, and hyper-violence, which uh, is why we will get a lot of people in love with returning to those, uh, those movies and kind of ripping uh, from them them and, and trying to take the basically the best parts. Uh, Django, for better or worse, uh, perfectly represents that era um, with an iconic performance by the ice-cold Frank Nero, who has been recognized most recently by Chad Stileski, Quentin Tarantino alike oh, that's as right. a les- legend. Yeah, he's in uh, John Wick 2. Right, yep. Uh, he runs the Italian <laughs> Continental, so <laughs> this is a good shout-out. But um, Nero, I don't have... Too many notes on, um, mostly because the the lip syncing really kills a lot of it's it. Tough. But uh, Nero is cool. He fits the bill of before uh, before Clint Eastwood was the man with no name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fits the bill on what they were going for, being the man with no name. Of course, my awareness of this film began with the great Django Unchained in tw- uh, twenty twelve. But oh, it, 2012, that's right. You're right. Not right. 14. Yep. Isn't that feel... It, it, I could have sworn it was 14. I know. That's, that's 2012 crazy. feels too old for it. But it, it wasn't until I watched this film did I see how much of its personality is sprinkled through so much other media. Uh, I mean a lot, specifically Django, not even just spaghetti Western trends. Uh, Django is is over a lot of things, one of these mm-hmm. being anime, actually. It's it's well known that Westerns like Fistful of Dollars um, as a trilogy borrows from the samurai films of the previous decade, mainly Kurosawa films. Right. Uh, and likewise, this feels identical to the wandering Ronin, man with no name story structure that makes up so much of 90s golden age anime. Uh, wow. I really feel like to the point that there are specific shots that I know in Cowboy Bebop have shots like there's a guy that carries around a coffin exactly like Django. So <laughs> that's awesome. Um, it it really is. It was it was a a fun watch in that way. Uh, that's not really playing into my rating too much because there's a lot uh, this film is uh, kind of fall short on. But uh, I, I want to respect that it has a place a little bit in film history. And folks at home, if you find yourself a buff of kind of film history in that way, Django could be a soft recommendation. Okay. So uh, Django captures 
all of this, the anime-ness of it, but the spaghetti western-ness of it perfectly because Django is seriously cartoony as a western. Um, he drags around a coffin with a Gatling gun in it. Um, this is a, you know, he's, he's just some like wandering justice with lightning speed. Arriving to the town, he stumbles upon a power struggle between rival gangs and shakes up the food chain on who has the quickest hand in the west. In this way, I think it's funny that you skip this to go to Rango because yeah. I feel like this has just such the boiled down Western story of what Rango was trying to do <laughs> that in the animal kingdom of Rango that he introduces something new to the food chain and shakes up the town, basically. That's pretty funny. So Okay, uh, I already swapped it for a good one. Right, yeah, basically. Uh, folks, I want to make it very clear. You aren't in this one for the drama. This is no Liberty Balance. Um, <laughs> this is dead simple uh, on top of a very bad lip sync on the dub uh it's really more it's about bad <laughs> yeah. it's bad i folks. mean you gave it 10 minutes uh, you have you didn't even see the worst of it <laughs> i it, it, i was really i was so disheartened by it interesting the moment it starts i was I so disheartened and then i was just like i i, I know i, I want to watch a film you mm. know and i knew i felt good i was awake you know that's huge <laughs> right <laughs> not always a given but uh on top of that very bad and i mean really bad lip sync lip sync on the dub um it's just more about action and style i would almost go so far to say that the simplicity of the story hurts the experience actually and really only survives on the most bare bones skeletal rule of cool possible <laughs> um, <laughs> not saying that there can't be just a boiled down cool western clearly these spaghetti westerns are proof of that clearly yeah, the sure. dollars trilogy are proof of that with clint eastwood there's something about it that it, it reaches a, a a rock bottom of simplicity that kind of kind of loses you and you're just paying attention to the action uh that action uh once again is very cartoony with stylish zooms and shootouts feeling right out of a comic book but i have to be honest that's where my area of disappointment was was the be- was the greatest, mm. um, especially coming off the Wild Bunch. Yes, there might be a lot of iconic fight scenes in this, but it felt like more of a TV-level production, and specifically like an early 60s TV-level production. I'm not surprised by that, actually. Yeah. Enemies will just blindly run into frame just to be met with a puff of smoke and instantly tumbling to the ground. I mean, it felt like, you know, season one of Star Trek right. with Kirk, like, <laughs> you know, karate chopping the lizard or something like that. Like, that's how minimally, that's how, like, effort, not, I don't want to say effortless. I don't want to say... It, it, it just feels like it doesn't have consideration. You know what I mean? The sure, action yeah. doesn't have put the same thought or, into it I mean, like, as other, other, other aspects of it. Probably, it probably felt like they had to film it really fast on a low budget, <laughs> which is exactly what they did. Right, and that's what these just, are. Just, <laughs> just as if you were trying to pump out an episode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to your point, yeah. yeah. Django may boast a high body count and fast action, giving its uh, hyper-violent style to spaghetti westerns, but it is at the cost of stakes, folks. And to me, it just didn't feel like the action had any care put into it. it Django can uh, can be boasted as the quickest hand in the West and, and, and have all this lethality, but if the enemies he's up against fall and tumble after one one puff of smoke that's not even yeah. pointed in their direction then what how does that feel it feels bad is what it does like mm-hmm. so i'm going to be fully transparent and say the soundtrack probably clocks this up a rating at least 
solid 10 points. The soundtrack it's is very good. good. It's yeah. that good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, sometimes that's all that you need. Uh, Luis uh, Bakalov, I believe it's how it's pronounced, is the composer. And a composer Tarantino has had in his holster since Kill Bill. Mm. Uh, and boy, does it make for some cool music. These Italians in the 60s, they love adding they guitar to westerns, and it is the best. <laughs> um, I mean, if there is anything that I wish could be retroactive into the 50s, just add guitar to the westerns that's all i need i need i need distorted guitar and and amp up the coolness of it uh, django's theme is legendary of course playing as the title track to tarantino's django's unchained and my personal favorite uh, if you do check it out folks on the soundtrack itself is a track named la corsa part two which is just like hmm. man it's just like wow it just takes you back it is like okay it's it's such an opposite way to make a score and soundtrack than today where there is a degree of modesty to try to like, it's not the soundtrack, it's about the movie. Right. This is about the soundtrack. <laughs> no one told this Italian man to chill out. Like, he's, 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 he's louder than the film itself. Okay. So, uh, and identically to his peer, Ennio Morcone, um, so much of the score just screams Western. I yeah. feel like why I love uh, more guitar elements in these Westerns and, and, and crazy blazing horns is that, for me, it's got to sell it. It's got to sell the Western attitude uh, of, of these cowboys. So, Folks, I think this movie has a lot of style and is a fun, breezy action Western to watch, but I'd be lying if I said this one didn't show its age. And some of that style only going so far without pretty much any substance. We're going to go ahead and give Django 1966 a 52. Okay, 52. <laughs> Just a tick above there. Uh, not surprising. And that is with the music doing a lot of weight there. Right. It would easily be in the 40s without the as music. As far as content goes. <laughs> maybe, maybe lower. I mean, you watch 10 minutes, I wouldn't be surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe check out the soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, and Frank Nero is cool. He looks cool. Yeah. He still looks cool today. I know. Like he's I, in an a, alternate reality, him and Clint Eastwood are swapped because they both have like the piercing blue eyes yes yeah um, yeah yeah and and they have the same swagger of it so. yeah definitely okay but 52 percent. i don't know go check it out if for... <laughs> like i said film historians really big film buffs yeah as uh, tarantino lovers i think you watch this as like a uh, uh, homework yeah curio curiosity yeah. kind of thing okay we're gonna keep things moving along here vin we are jumping to 1998 this is the classic fear and loathing in las vegas yeah. uh what about this film this week i was shocked to see it this <laughs> right, week right yeah. Uh, happy to see it, though. Yeah, so uh, while we covered Rango uh, there ah. uh, in, in the last few weeks, um, there were so many Easter eggs of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in that film ah, uh, because okay. of the Johnny Depp angle, but also specifically when Rango is falling off of the, the, um, the moving truck. He falls into a, a, a 3D, you know, Rango of Five oh, version right, <laughs> of Benicio Del Toro and, and Johnny Depp in it from <laughs> this movie. So I, I don't know. Uh, while I've been, uh, you know, while I've seen many parts of this film broken up, I've never really watched it all the way through from really? start to finish. Yeah. Wow. And it's kind of a perfect random watch to get on the website. So that was kind of my logic with watching Fear and Loathing. Yeah, it, it's so. definitely a good thing to get on the site for sure. Yeah. I've seen it. I think I've seen it multiple times. I didn't watch yeah. it fresh for this week, but I probably watched it through maybe twice and then bits mm -hmm. and parts God, five times or something like that. And it's that. one of those things that I'm familiar with it enough. Of course, uh, yeah. But, um, you know, watching through it I thought was important. I and love it. Folks, I would like to start with the MPAA rating for this film. Rated R for 
pervasive extreme drug use <laughs> and related bizarre behavior, <laughs> strong language, and brief nudity. And boy, if that doesn't just <laughs> nail it to this a film, yeah, to a give, that, give that MPAA guy a raise. <laughs> imagine like submitting that to your boss. Uh, related bizarre, be- what is related about it's this so bizarre behavior? <laughs> Sometimes that MPA is just like, wow, they're just making this, they're just making this crap <laughs> right, up. Right. I want to know what other films fall under these categories. So you would love, I, it's actually, it's funny, when I was doing the compilations on the site uh-huh. and we have a boys watch, yeah. like Cop Shot is on there. Yeah, yeah. I think we could probably go through all films, look at the MPAA description, oh. and get a Cop Shot is just like, oh, oh, that's a boys watch right that's there. That's a boys watch. <laughs> yeah. But this nailed it for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, if you're not familiar with this one, folks, it's a doozy. Um, this is one of the many stories penned by the legendary journalist Hunter S. Thompson, who became very close with Johnny Depp as a result of this production. Uh, Thompson earned his fame through creating uh, gonzo journalism uh, as a movement, uh, being a hyper-unique voice to grab the attention of his readers. Uh, speaking honestly, uh, I, I don't have any reading time with Thompson, but instead I would say my best experience, and probably your best experience as well, Tom, mm-hmm. with gonzo journalism comes from Anthony Bourdain. That we have these right. very strong personalities giving a very subjective type of viewpoint, first-person viewpoint of their experiences in, in, in a journalistic way. Uh, basically, though, overall the term is referring to that voice of the author being inseparable from the experience of the story. And boy, does that nail what Fear and Loathing is mm. as well. It's a very strong narration. My description... And I would say alternate title for this film is Adventures in Not Being Sober. (laughs) Uh, We follow one of Thompson's stories, uh, which Johnny Depp plays the man himself. Uh, And what starts as a journalism assignment to cover events in Las Vegas rapidly, and I mean rapidly, spirals into a drug-fueled bender that somehow a story was written about. I I think the most unbelievable parts is that Hunter S. Thompson wrote anything during the time. Things were written down, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess that's why he's he's a famous author. Don't sweat if you can't tell what is true or not, though. Uh, Most of the experience through Thompson's eyes is him being high as a kite, and his narrative voice is driven by this chaotic feeling. I feel like the the power of narration in this, um, again, what I would think captures the true-to-formness of his gonzo writing, but also there's just such personality to mm. it uh, and really sells it. Uh, as wild as this movie is with the insane variety of drugs, uh, the movie is authentic in presenting how the high feels for these characters. Take the psychedelics, for instance. Not only does this avoid dated CGI or... Oh, that's a good point. Uh, avoiding tacky jokes that every stoner comedy before it has made, you know, face melting or some shit like that. Right. Instead, there's an attention to detail in the set design and lighting. And honestly, it feels nightmarish at times, but in that way, is 10,000 times more authentic in its presentation of what it feels like to be on these drugs. I'll circle back to it, but the surrealism that was achieved in this film is fantastic and should be placed alongside of many other great surreal films. Uh, Even though they may be Mm -hmm. drug-fueled, drug-inspired, the surrealism, it captures what you want in the mental aspect of how it, you know, maybe tortures a character or something like that. I think that's a phenomenal point. Yeah. Yeah. This movie's made 10 years later, totally different. Oh, yeah. 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 And even just avoiding the pitfall of, like, jokes that were made in, like, Cheech Mm. and Chong, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So... 
this is where Thompson's writing is is excellent and just really shines. His description of the countless drugs is just so vivid and so <laughs> colorful in vocabulary that you could be sober as a bird, folks. You could not touch anything and still understand what our characters are experiencing and also the nightmare that they could be experiencing <laughs> by mixing these. In this way, I would say the film almost becomes Scorsese-like in how it plays out. You know, fun at first, but then easily slips into being a bit scary. Uh, take the great descriptions from Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street specifically, but like the lewds. Uh, oh, and, that was a good one, yeah. You know, I, I feel like that gives you an idea of the type of narration, but also the quality of the narration and writing to this film. Uh, I feel like it's right on par for that. Yeah, very good, yeah. So, uh, Johnny Depp's performance is fantastic. I certainly... Uh, would say this is in the vein of Jack Sparrow before he's Jack Sparrow, uh, before that was a thing. I mean, his cigarette you th- you hole. Th- th- yeah, really, in the same vein. Uh, yeah, because it's like, the, you know, it's, it's basically <laughs> just him mumbling his words. You know? <laughs> okay. So exchange rum for every drug, and that's what you get. So, you know, it's a minor point, but his cigarette holder has to be one of the greatest props to channel a character yeah, all the time, definitely. just because it gets that talking down, you know. Yep. Benicio Del Toro is equally great in this, coming uh, only a few years after his breakout role in Usual Suspects. I'll be honest, I don't really have much more notes on the characters themselves, because it's so hard to define them. They're always high, and then they're always high on different drugs, so it's just like... I don't know what... You can't say much more other than the acting is phenomenal. Right, I right. mean, Del Toro, you you know, people know what Del Toro looks like now. You go back then, he's indistinguishable almost <laughs> yeah, in a certain real. way. Um, so the two of them just kind of, man, the way they interact with each other, with the drugs, with their own surroundings, mm. it's they're two great performances. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he is very much a... A, a, an incredibly present supporting character. Yeah. You know, he gets a lot of screen time. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like I said earlier, the crafted surrealism is what I appreciate most about this film. There's a quick dream sequence that um, that uh, has a judge. I think uh, Depp is, uh, exp- you know, imagining what it would be like to be in front of a judge or something like that while he's high, which is, you know, the paranoia of it. <laughs> it just felt, and I could not shake this, right out of the... 1985 masterpiece Brazil. Ah. I just couldn't shake it. I was just like, what's going on here? And what do you know? Yep. The director is the same. Terry Gilliam strikes didn't know. again. I, I just wasn't aware I of it. I didn't know either until I was doing research on yeah. it. Yeah. And it was, I, I felt it in that scene. I felt Brazil come wow. through in that scene. I was like, whoa. And, and even in this dream sequence, he's not supposed to be high necessarily. This is all his mind. Right. Man, did it capture just the surreal mix of comedy and also like a little bit scary uh it is the film is uncomfortable sometimes yeah, yeah. uh now i watched it mostly when i was younger sure, so it definitely sure. comes off a little scary a little bit right, just right. Uh, that uncomfortableness that's something's off kind yeah. of deal it's it's like a suspense comedy as weird as that sounds mm, yeah but in the same way brazil is kind of without without borders without genre to it i mean that's uh, so cool that you found those connections oh, without yeah. knowing the connection I, I as soon as i saw it i was like i just you're couldn't shake it you're a pro <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just it just didn't hit me until that judge scene and all of my praise on set design and care putting into the unique presentation it really made perfect sense um and and that's where we'll end it folks i mean i would say like brazil it's it's almost beyond a genre description um, but because of how intense the film is i do have to say it's really not for everyone yeah 
My best stab at a genre would be a surreal, drug-fueled, suspenseful comedy, or in other words, something that you're going to have to probably watch for yourself. We're going to go ahead and give Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas a 77. Wow, very good score. Yeah. Very good score. And honestly, like going through it a little bit, kind of critically disliked. Yeah, absolutely. Which, I don't know. I'm really surprised by it. Yeah. because One, because of the performances, and usually just critics, they're more... I find critics to be easier going when it comes to like drug content stuff mm, almost. Yeah. You know, uh, it kind of shocked me. Even from sure. Ebert to Tomatoes to yeah. uh, a couple other ones I checked as well. Yeah. Just surprised yeah. me. I, I think so. And I think people just, uh, or maybe maybe critics, they see it. And it's it's also, it's it's an offensive film in the sense that like you're not at ease watching this film. That's a but, great way to put it. Yeah. But offensive, I, I, it is an offensive <laughs> film a bit. It makes you, yeah. It's offensive in any, every way. Yeah. It so. puts you on your heels a little bit. Yeah. Because you're watching almost a constant struggle <laughs> yeah right, right yeah shift in and out of fun times and then scary oh boy do we have to go to the hospital times right you know that that's where i urge uh the craft uh, of this movie uh this is not your stoner comedy this is not hell a, no uh, no uh what is that mo- new movie coming out strays and has like some you know some like tripping on mushrooms jokes they it avoids any cliche and is just yeah. such a its own thing Love it. Uh, 77, great score, Vin. Two hours. Do you think it's a little bit too long? Could some be shaved off there? I do think it, uh, that it, that is a little bit too long, yeah. just in the sense that also how the story is structured, there's a really big fall-off point um, halfway through. That, right. Of course, anyone that's seen the film knows the you know the scene, in the, we'll say the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but that's more so a judgment on the ordering of it. I didn't bring it up because, I mean... It's Hunter S. Thompson. Well, yeah. If that's how he experienced it, that's how he experienced it. So. <laughs> All right, very good, Vince. 77 for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, before we get to our new films here, folks, just want to remind you, we're going off the value-for-value value model. So if you're new to the podcast here, what we do is, Vin and I, of course, we sit down every week. We host the podcast. Vin watches the films. However, you all help produce the podcast. And how you do that, you produce with monetary support. Go to the dailyratings.com and go to the donations tab. And through your monetary support, you become a one producer of the Daily Ratings. And you show us what value you're getting from our product, basically. So the idea is, did you laugh this week? Are you starting to get into film more than what you were before listening to us? Are you making your own list? Are you going off of us a little bit? Uh, Make you laugh, cry? Do you love it, hate it, whatever? (laughs) It's value in your pocket. Can you show us value back in our pocket? So we have fun set donations. We have a monthly. We have a weekly. Well, a few monthlies and a weekly. Um, But the idea is if you just want to go ahead and peg a number, a random number, you can go ahead and send that in our way. It's whatever value you're getting from what we're presenting here, basically, Mm -hmm. to you. That's kind of how we're doing things. It's kind of a new way of doing things. You know, we're trying to stay away from advertisers. That's why we're doing it like this. We also don't want to just deal with Patreon because that absolutely sets you up kind of for a monthly thing. It also deals with paywalls where... If you give five months, you get this much. If you get, if you give us twenty five months or twenty five bucks a month, you get even more content. Mm-hmm. Uh, five bucks to you is a lot different than the other person and another person. Yeah, so, we want to put the control in your hands ex- as to what value you get out of this. Exactly. Now it does take a little responsibility because everything is free. Mm-hmm. So technically, you know, you're getting it for free. But the idea is is building up a little bit of family, a community. It builds rapport with you because when you do send in a donation, you can write in a note as long as you want and, and send it our way. Mm-hmm. We're going to address it right here on the podcast, whether it be, again, love, hate, critiques, comments, questions, whatever. That's our time right now in this podcast, this segment, to go through that. And we love uh, getting donation notes from everybody. Hopefully more and more are going to be... Donated in as more and more people listening. We're approaching our Hundy episode, so don't forget to donate the Hundy on the Hundy. 
Uh, we have a lot of great stuff planned in the future. We've got some stuff in the works that we're really excited about to bring for you, for everyone, for you guys. So, uh, again, it's a value for value model. It's the dailyratings.com. You can also hit us up at Venmo at the daily ratings. And if you're into Bitcoin or you know about podcasting 2.0, we do accept Satoshis on our site. Or, of course, if you have the Podverse app, uh, we're good to go there as well. So we just want to make it accessible to all y'all. We appreciate it so much. Okay, Vin, with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to our newly released films. Let's go ahead. We're going to go ahead and cover The Last Voyage of the... Demeter? Right. It's, it's Demeter. I always thought it was Demeter. Because okay. it, I believe uh, Goddess of Winter, I want to say, or Goddess of Death or something like that. I, I always know. thought it was Demeter. Okay. But, but it's, it's Demeter. Demeter. And in Demeter. the film, it's Demeter? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> the Last Voyage of Demeter. Let's kind of set it up. This is a Dracula-based uh, story. Mm, yep. And this sto- when I the more I, I had no interest in it, and then I read about it, and I thought, that's actually not a bad idea. Interesting. In execution, certainly in the box office, I don't know <laughs> how well it's hitting. So let's get into it right away. How is it performing as a film? Well, I, I would say the, the trailer on this one lost me, Tom. Um, on top of giving uh. away the entire goddamn movie, <laughs> I mean, man. Uh, but we don't get many straight up monster movies like this, so I wanted to give it a shot. And there was uh, some soft hype online for this one. Oh, okay. Something I was confused about was the significance of this vampire-based story. Uh, initially, I thought otherwise, but I guess this is a story within the original Bram uh, Stoker Dracula. Right in the opening crawl, we are told that this is adapting elements of the captain's log from the novel, which was like in the appendices, I guess. Okay. You know, I'm I'm 50-50 on the inclusion of Big D. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) it's the best marketing choice to include Dracula. Oh, yeah, you'd be stupid not to throw it in. Right, right. But, uh, you know, this is, this goes back to the, what I always say, that I'm not a, you know, a a main producer in Hollywood because I'd make all the wrong choices. (laughs) I think this would be so... So much cooler and predictable, uh, less predictable if it was a random vampire and maybe even switch up some of those vampire rules. But is the idea that this is like an origin story a little bit? Yeah, kind I, I, don't, of. I don't hate that. And the yeah. fact, if you're going back to the original book and like right. going through, it's if, if we know that the captain wrote stuff or yeah. you have like extra content there, expanding yeah. on that, opening up the Dracula world. I'm cool with mm-hmm. so long as it's going to be like one of the biggest movies of the year, maybe. Or like, <laughs> right, you take right. a lot of care and love yeah, yeah. at a forty-five thousand, a forty-five million dollar budget only. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, by the nature of the story, there's definitely some sequel bait at the end, as it would just be of course. how it's set up in the book as well. This kind of being the kickoff to right. uh, to uh, Bram's um, because uh, what Bram's a ra- novel would a random vampire story really do all that well? I don't. That's see. That's why I'm a weirdo. I, I would. I, again, this isn't doing well. So. It <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That aside, oh, set up here, folks. Uh, in uh, 1897, a ship named Demeter sets sail to London with a devilish cargo the crew are otherwise unaware of. This movie has a decent cast of semi-recognizable faces and presents the ensemble in a way that will leave the audience guessing who will die first in this kind of bloody affair. But sadly, uh, this never flips our expectation enough to avoid a lot of monster movie cliches. Uh, In screenwriting, uh, I'm a big fan of haunted houses as a setting concept. To me, any horror that is set in a hard-to-escape place, trapping characters for scares, falls into this trope, the the haunted house. You like that, huh? Oh, yeah, because when it's done differently. Ah, okay, okay, there you Um, go. (laughs) 
not that it's just a haunted house, right. but when it's done, you know, something different. And, you know, many successful horrors will raise the stakes by emphasizing the inescapability of that setting. This story doing the same by putting the boat helplessly at sea. Right. I would say that that's a that's part of my praise for this. I feel like there is some um, some thought to creating some tension and some creativity to how the boat is used with a monster on it. Um, someday, folks, I'll have the courage to speak about one of my favorite movies, 1979's Alien, and we will <laughs> undoubtedly talk about the stakes of a haunted house in space. Uh, so this movie achieves a, a slight sliver of that, sure. uh, which, I, which I enjoyed. But not much beyond that is done to clock up the tension. Uh, this movie drastically underutilizes its rated R rating, which I felt was a serious miss. It's not very scary at all, and honestly, gore could have been clocked way up hmm. i felt like some even some practical effects they could have just had some fun with uh, in some way uh, set design and creature design is a small highlight here for the film but i feel like it's really only gonna hit for the most die hard vampire fans on this the plot is investigative but not really compelling for our for keeping our intention this doesn't really have the problem solving needed for a truly great monster movie I'll, I'll say this is slightly reminiscent of John Carpenter's The Thing, mm. uh, where they learn slowly about the monster, but it fails, I think, on two fronts. Just when the investigation is picking up, the plot throws in a stowaway character that just expedition dumps everything we need, need to know about Dracula. And uh, completely just... Dis- hate that. Yeah, it, well, it also deflates the, what was working in the film of just like, we need to figure out what the hell is on this ship. And how it operates, right. and you how would, to kill it, right? You now know? you want that visual. You want that told to you visually, yeah. and Actually, make it part of the movie, or even just through character actions, not just like, "Hey, I know it all, and I <laughs> happen to be on this ship," and you know, it's just yeah, it just was really like lame to see. Uh, and there's just not enough internal drama to keep my attention. Uh, they needed that paranoia in the thing mm-hmm. uh, to create more stress in the settings. You know, like they have the pressure cooker, but they don't use it. You know, hmm. the ship idea again cool set it at sea they can't escape it is cool yeah you know but it, it's almost uh, squandered there, there's nothing done with it or there's not enough done with it to really you know amp things up right right uh, turn the tension that that's really where i'm at with this film you know folks it's not outwardly bad but it's played so straight and has so little to surprise you that I have very little to praise for it. Uh, not scary enough for a serious horror and certainly not to stand out in a, a, a year with a lot of Talk C. about being at yeah, C. Yeah, that, that's the C. We're all in the haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and like I said, while it technically may work as a monster movie, technically may work as an interesting Dracula origin for super hardcore vampire fans, uh, it just brings little new to the table. We're going to go ahead and give The Last Voyage of the Demeter a 50 on the dot. Boy, 50 on the dot. Boy, that was a quick one, V. Yeah. <laughs> well, got to make up for Liberty Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, 50%. Yeah. Just not much to say about it. That's exactly what a 50% is. Absolutely. What you just don't have much Absolutely. to say about it. It, it was, it was uh, it's the first w- time in a while that I was like, yep, that's it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's... <sighs> yeah. And, folks, you're looking for alternate recommendations. The two films I reference are basically the perfect versions of the elements that slightly work in this film, being 1979's Alien and, of course, John Carpenter's The, the thing. thing. Okay, wow, 50%. Gave it the old, the old 
one shoe, one lace. <laughs> the, the rarity. <laughs> the rarity. Okay, all right. And boy, go see it now because I don't think it's going to last long in theaters. Right, right. So let's go ahead and move on. This is not yet in theaters, but was in theaters for a day. <laughs> right. Vin managed to go see it on that day. This is going to be coming out in a couple weekends. So let's find out if it's worth it or not. Vin, this is Gran Turismo by Neil Blomkamp. Blomkamp. Yeah. <laughs> And how'd you like it? Well, uh, folks, uh, I'll start with saying my thoughts on our director have really evolved over time. Uh, Neil Blomkamp went from being, honestly, a prodigy of science fiction uh, to a director of varying quality over 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) You know, works like 2009's District 9 and even his short film projects through Oat Studios show that he had an exciting new voice to bring to the genre. But 2021's laughable, ba- laughably bad demonic showed that his early career may be just a little bit of lightning in a bottle. That's right. Well, uh, early career, too. Elysium did not hit super, right. super well. Yeah. And if and anyone was probably going to like that film, it was going to be you. Right, and I don't sure. think you liked that film too no, much. No, I didn't really like that film too much. <laughs> and Chappie's in the same boat. I really want to like Chappie. Yeah, he does Chappie as well, folks. Um, yeah. You know, but again, it's just like... Mm. He was becoming a very one-track director a little bit in this whole mm. theme of sci-fi, robots, futuristic type stuff, yep. dystopian things. So yep. everyone, a lot, most people know him for District 9, mm-hmm. which is a great film. Oh, yeah. And then setting up with, you described Oat Studio. It was mm-hmm. episode, a long episode ago. Like, mm-hmm. like my, it was a long, one of the early, early episodes. Spent some time talking about Oat Studio. Yeah. And people should go, still go check it out. Yeah. I think that might have been for the demonic review that we wow. did. That could have been. That yeah. probably was it. But the idea behind Oat Studio is it's major kind of players that mm-hmm. deal with futuristic or, uh, alien slash robotic type dystopian mm-hmm. future stuff and they're short films for the most part yeah but it's big talent behind it for shorts for short films some big money sure. short, short films are concerned sure so some really cool projects on oat studios you can just go ahead on their website and check some of their projects out yep kind of cool and then when you look at his films he makes he is so in that yes genre that's his baby but then Devana comes out and now <laughs> gran turismo right you know, I, I personally, and I will say passionately, hope this is not the case that we're going to just see him slip further and further into kind of some mediocrity. But him taking on a corporate project like this is not a great sign, folks. <laughs> you know, what I mean, this this was not the one to kind of win me back on some of my building thoughts. Um, so, Blonde Camp, I'm rooting for you, but I, I want to see District Nine again. I want to see, you know, the design. Give me the guns. Give me, give me, give me Weta Studios working with you. That's so. the thing. How much? How much was it Blomkamp that made District 9 great? <laughs> right. Or Peter Jackson? Mm, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, definitely a commentary on the value of producing mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in these films. So, Gran Turismo is our second bout with PlayStation Productions, the first being Tom's favorite, Uncharted, yeah. from last year. <laughs> uh, and uh, this movie exists in a weird split of being 50% a video game movie, not that there's much of a story to Gran Turismo to adapt, and 50% a true story biopic, which right. is where I would argue this film does work quite a bit. In this, we see the origins of real-life racer Jan Martinborough. Yeah, Martinborough. Boy, I'll tell you what, pronunciation of this episode. Uh, we're struggling. <laughs> we're struggling. Our tongues are all over the place. We'll see, we'll see where what makes it in the edit. 
<laughs> so, but uh, back in 2008, this real story, Gran Turismo ran a competition to turn their driving simulator into a talent funnel and pumped out uh, competition-ready race car drivers. Jan was a huge success in this program and still racing today. Actually, he did the stunt work for his actor counterpart in the movie, which is pretty cool stuff. Very cool. I, I like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, he essentially starred in the most important part of the movie, which was the racing. <laughs> so he got his own movie. So good for him. Good for Jan. This biopic side of it, uh, easily the best. Uh, I'm going to structure this review that I got some I got some bones to pick with this movie, mm-hmm. but by the end, and not even in a cheap razzle-dazzle way, the end really does bring it home. Um, there's a huge divide online before this movie even came out that critics are really hating on this one and fans are in love with this film. Okay. And I feel like it just has to do with what the film does in its last third that just will win anyone over, honestly. Do you think... Well, apparently not the critics, though. Nah, the critics aren't true. loving it. Right, I would right. say... I mean, these are Sony fanboys. Just like we have our, <laughs> just like we have our Marvel fanboys. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to uptick the rating on that, on <laughs> right. that, you know, the audience score. Yeah. Uh, maybe you have this where Sony fanboys are Sony fanboys. Yeah. Even me. Right. I, oh, I, mean, I have I, it in the notes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I call I, us both out. I we had, are Sony fanboys. Uh, Sony fanboys. I had a big and... <laughs> one of the only video games franchise I ever cared about was Uncharted, of right. course. I love it. But the only other one that like, I could say I really liked mm-hmm. quite a lot, I love Gran Turismo 5. I had a huge oh, yeah. Gran Turismo phase in me yeah, yeah. Uh, with, with PS3. Yeah. And so, that's the one that Nissan partners with them for this GT Academy. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right right along there. So I feel like one of the reasons why the story hits mm-hmm. for you a little bit and the reason why, oh, that's the good part of the film, the biopic mm. part, is because it actually is kind of a biography of what happened. The fact that it's real mm. and actually happened helps it completely. Yep. And if this was just a story or if this just was a written up thing, mm. it's like, uh, okay, all right. Yeah. You know, from video game racer to racer. It's like, all right. I get it. Right, exactly. You know? yeah. exactly. But it, it, it happened, and I feel like um, that's that, that's really where the film works best is when it's just doing its biopic thing. Right, you know? yep. So uh, this story originally coming from this PS3 generation of consoles um, was not cutting it for Sony, however. Blomkamp and team were definitely tasked with updating everything to the most modern hardware and games, and without a doubt is serves as a sales pitch for Sony, and it feels mm. very deliberate, especially in the early parts of this film. The, here it is. I have no problem in saying I'm a huge Sony fanboy like you yep. would as well, Tom. <laughs> I, I think this decision was the first misstep in, in telling this true story. This is a great biopic idea on its own, but around every corner you can feel the corporate grasp. Um, yeah. To the point I'm that I'm not surprised by this at the, all. Yeah, to the point that there are more PS5 specific shoutouts than Gran Turismo game shoutouts. Mm. This is at its worst in the CGI of the film, where HUD and user interfaces of Sony products will stand out more than anything from the actual games. The sound effects that they use from this are not from the Gran Turismo games; they're from the PS5 interface. Really? Yeah. Now you'd be the one to know that too. <laughs> right, right. And maybe oh, well, that's, how about that? Right, that's maybe the definition of a nitpick. But I just feel like the corporate sales aspect, especially of this first hour, is just driven home so much in a way that it. Uncharted didn't even have to face. You know? Mm, yeah. Uh, because of the well, real you're dealing life with, aspect. Exactly. Of it. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What plays out from here, though, is a very by-the-numbers teen competition movie. Um, Everyone's favorite, David Harbour, plays our typical hard-ass coach. 
And Orlando Bloom even comes out of obscurity to play our typical sleazy marketing manager. <laughs> He's starting to look like a dad. <laughs> yeah. His forehead's getting a little bit bigger, too. He's starting to age. <laughs> Can I make a comment? Sure. I don't think I like David Harbour really all that much. Whoa. Hot take. I mean, you know me. I tried to get everyone into, the, into Stranger Things, Stranger Things <laughs> right. which I did for you. Right. And yes, to me, right. myself, never watched past season one. <laughs> which, is, which is the, the most <laughs> brilliant, genius-level move you could ever make. By the way, I loved it. I didn't stop watching because right, right. I didn't like it. I right. loved it. Yeah. It's just like, I got enough going on. Yeah. I'm going to fall asleep. Um, but then I just feel like David Harbour is overused a little bit and trying to just be all David Harbour-ish. Like, I liked him... <laughs> I mean, I knew him back as Casino Royale, kind oh. of. Oh! <laughs> or, no, no, he was wait, in... Wait, um, oh, uh, Layer Cake. Yes. No, no, no. No. <laughs> no the, I'm trying to think of the, the, uh, t- the 2008 Craig uh, Bond film, Quantum of Solace. Oh, okay, okay. He kind of plays, he plays bad kind of CIA keeping stuff from MI6 guy. Mm. It's like a it's like a bit role. <laughs> right. And I, that's where it's just like, that's where he belongs in my mind. <laughs> No better. <laughs> He's not bad as Harper, but yeah, anyway, yeah. that's my David Harper comment. <laughs> that's, that's the hot take. All right. <laughs> well, I what I will say in that note then, uh, uh, Harper is leagues better than or- Orlando Bloom in this. Orlando oh, really? Bloom oh. falls into a very, again, predictable by the numbersness to it, where at least Harper, I don't know, there's some emotion towards the end of the film, and he adds to the good side of that. Okay. So. Okay. This first half, though, folks, it falls into that young adult competition story structure that has largely fallen out of style since the 2010s, or at least the end of like a Hunger Games series or anything like that. That's coming back uh, in November, I think. So, <laughs> oh boy, we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to get back to that. Um, but I'm happy to say the second half looks a lot better with the plot shifting into real life events from Jan's story and a serious focus on racing. I would say. When the story does eventually break free, the cliche aspects really do melt away because once the competition is done, once he gets the gig, basically, it's right. about racing. Okay. And it's about Jan's story racing once he gets in. So I feel like it works a lot better and the movie works as a racing biopic as it was meant to be. Even to my nitpick critiques of the corporate aspects that are sprinkled in here or, or shoved in here, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when it com- yeah, it's toned back because guess what? Sony doesn't have a place on the racetrack, right. you know? <laughs> so I would say a big highlight for the film being true to the game experience is the sheer variety of racetracks. It is a who's who of legendary racetracks from the Nürburgring to Le Mans and so many more. Also, anyone who has played Gran Turismo can tell you, hey, that's one seriously fancy race car game. Right, Like, yeah. they play smooth jazz over you just looking at the cars. <laughs> like, it's a fancy <laughs> race car game. So, I feel like the inclusion of countless prestige cars in this was a welcome sight on the racetrack, but also worthy of some credit for the production as well. This wasn't just, let's, you know, throw in some hot cars because they're hot cars. No, right, it need right. to show... How much Gran Turismo captures the racing culture and racing brands for that reason. Okay, so, cool. Overall, though, this did an okay job at adapting the racing elements of the game. Again, not that there's much story there to to adapt. And equally did an okay job at adapting Jan's racing story and real-life story of rising to success. I think there were some surprisingly good emotional beats with his family towards the end, but... 
I got to be honest, folks, uh, the blah that is sprinkled over the whole experience is through some heavy-handed studio notes from Sony and a just straight-up washed-out story structure that did not need to be tacked on for an already compelling biopic. We're going to go ahead and give Gran Turismo a 56. Oh, wow. 56 only. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like towards the end, it's there. But it's it's like one third of the movie. Wow, where there's two thirds of corporate garbage and just, a, a, just maybe genericness. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like teen competition. Like been there, done that. No matter what, you get the one teen that's like a badass and he's the foil. Then you get like the token girl racer. It's just like this is. I, oh my god! <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, wow, fifty six percent. I was trying to think of what a, what a good double header film for this would be. <laughs> right. You know, I was even thinking like, would Harry Potter the first one be good? <laughs> Because you have the dueling ha- schools that, or houses or whatever. Decidedly not a good double header. Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter, Sorcerer's Stone, and then Gran Turismo. I was thinking Holes, too, with Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> wow. Uh, as far as 50, yeah, 56 is lower than maybe I thought it was going to be. Yeah. How was... So a lot of racing, of course, yeah. second half of film. How was it shot? Was it shot okay? Well, as far as interior of cart, mm-hmm. exterior shots, interior... You know what I mean? I think so. That, uh, um, and definitely pulls a Ford versus Ferrari where you can't really tell when the CGI is taking over for real racetrack good, footage. Good, yeah. Uh, despite obviously even sharing some of the same racetracks. So. Good, okay. Um, At least that's all right. Yeah. But, okay, 56%. little lackluster, like you said, definitely on the... Uh... <laughs> that's why I was happy for Liberty Valance. Especially Django was a miss then. I was just like, all right. Were you expecting big things for Django? I think I was. Uh, I was I, not. I was no. Not, no. I, th- I think that's that's that really it, it honestly it takes me back Tom to when we were first tackling some of those spaghetti westerns like the Dollars trilogy, and we watched Good Bad and the Ugly and we were both like hey. <laughs> we were like <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah. we're like oh no we is no are we is bad us? are we dumb like, yeah. so we're not uh, the biggest fan folks right right uh, but, well, by the yeah. way Quentin Tarantino's favorite film I believe <laughs> <laughs> or, or one of favorite films yeah, of all time go figure go figure uh, okay Vin looking at these scores <laughs> looking at this weirder kind of array a week we had uh anything you want to touch on comments anything uh not looking forward to blue beetle next week Uh, (laughs) but we got blue beetle so i was actually thinking about maybe doing like what we did for the morpheus episode not that i think blue beetle is gonna be like really bad but i was thinking about just doing another like bad superhero episode maybe well there's plenty there (laughs) there's plenty to work with if you want to get the westerns going no one's gonna say no (laughs) maybe some people don't like it but you know i like it over here (laughs) Uh, but also, Vin, Vin, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us, rating these films for us. Folks at home, we're going to run it down one more time. We have The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance with an 84%, Django from 66 with 52%, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with a 77 The Last Voyage of the Demeter with a 50 and finally, Gran Turismo with a 56%. Folks, thank you so much for listening. we got some great content in the future for you. We'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, give us a good rating or tell a friend about us. If you're wondering if a film is worth the watch, or if you just had to see more movie ratings for Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com, where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, if you found value in the podcast or our site, become a producer and go to the Donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you receive from us. 
We're looking to build this into something large and great, folks, but we want to be independent from those corporate sponsors. So we greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.